Welcome to Trash Compactor. I'm Josh, and if you haven't figured it out by now, we here at Trash Compactor are just as interested, maybe sometimes even more so, in the behind-the-scenes stories of how Star Wars came to be and why it is the way it is, as much as the content of the movies themselves. And I'm joined today by a special guest who is also a Star Wars behind-the-scenes nerd. I hope he'll forgive me for using the term to uh, to discuss one of the most fascinating figures in the making of Star Wars, Marsha Lucas. He hosts my favorite Star Wars podcast, Talking Bay 94, which is devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators from a galaxy far, far away, where he takes a weekly deep dive into some never-before-heard stories from the set and Skywalker Ranch, from background aliens to some of the biggest stars in the universe. I am so pleased to welcome Brandon Winardi to Trash Compactor. Hello, Brandon. Hello. Thank you uh, so much for having me. And also those very kind words, uh, very unnecessary, but thank you. I mean, I'm not just blowing smoke. <laughs> Talking Bay 94 is my favorite Star Wars podcast. I think you do a phenomenal job over there. Like some of the conversations that you've had, like I literally, you know, as I'm sure you can relate, you think you've read all the things and heard mm. all the things and seen all the interviews and all the making ofs. And then whenever you come across a story or a point of view about the making of these movies that you've never heard before it's kind of like whoa like where how did <laughs> how did i not know that and so many times when i'm listening to you interview one of your guests on one of your episodes i'll get like a nugget a window and insight that i'd never heard before so i quickly became very addicted to talking bay 94 and so just <laughs> so thank you for the work that you do and all your contributions to star wars lore <laughs> I pre I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, thank you for those kind of words. Yeah, it's um, it's been a, a trip because I, I watched and I've always been watching those same documentaries and reading the same books that you were mentioning. And so being able to talk to so many of the people that are referenced in there or that are, you know, major parts of those of those books is just like, um, is a, is a real dream come true. And so um, I always have to pinch myself that then also people listen to my stuff uh, and, uh, and I'm able to tell some of their stories that might not have been told before. No, absolutely. So yeah, so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have you be the one that I have this discussion about Marsha Lucas with for any listeners who aren't aware, Marsha Lucas was the wife of George Lucas. She was a film editor in her own right. And she contributed a lot to the creative decisions behind the scenes of the original Star Wars trilogy and also American Graffiti and George Lucas's other films. And since their divorce in 1983, she has, you know, stayed out of the public eye and for reasons that are probably understandable has never really factored in much in terms of the official making of materials. And it's not until I think the last few years, really, where, you know, a lot of people kind of realize that there's a Marsha Lucas sized hole in the story of the making of these films. And that combined with her sort of reemergence in the public, she gave her first, I think, on camera sit down interview for that Vice documentary series that came out around the same time as Light and Magic. I believe. When did you first become aware of Marsha Lucas and the role that she played in the making of the original trilogy? Yeah, for sure. I think the biggest mention of her in any like catalog of, of Star Wars, you know, behind the scenes stories comes from the Skywalking biography by Dave Pollock. Um, which was written during a time when George and Marsha are still together. So Dave Pollock goes to Skywalker Ranch hangs out with George Lucas for a very long time and is also hanging out with Marsha 
that entire time as well. And it's during the fraying of their marriage, which is an interesting perspective during all of these conversations, but she is a major presence in all of the stories and all of the conversation and how that book is put, put together, uh, which makes it an invaluable, like um, bird's eye point of view resource. Um, Cause it really is kind of maybe the most unfettered version of it all that we have. Uh, of course, once you see that, once I saw all of that, I kind of then went further in. She's mentioned briefly in empire of dreams a little bit. There's always that famous photo of her and, and George on the editing bay. Um, the Rensler book does a little bit um, to talk about her. Um, but since those Rensler books were so closely worked on with Lucas, right? J.W. Rensler, amazing, incredible, uh, the most important figure in, in, in behind the scenes Star Wars. Um, but since Lucas was was so tied to those, there were not a lot of mentions of Marsha. And then it became a little bit of an interesting revisionist history in a good way uh, over the past, like you were mentioning, about a decade or so. Uh, that Marsha and her involvement has really come into play um, and her slowly coming back into the spotlight after the Disney sale has been very interesting. Um, as you mentioned, most recently, there was that Icons Unearthed documentary, which I watched, um, which we can talk about. You can talk about it here. I was not a fan of it um, and how it was. Put together no, I mean, of- the Vice series very much has a specific narrative that yes. is... Um, which is not... Yes. Mm, no, no, which so, is also, like, you know, very much like the Vice way. It's like, here's the real story that they're not... Sure. It, it was... It uh, was um, what's the word? It was unfortunate for that filmmaker, filmmaker in quotes, uh, that his, his documentary came out at the same time as Light and Magic, which was potentially one of the greatest behind-the-scenes, you know, things in a, a long time. Uh, and yeah. the fact that they were coming out at the same exact time uh, was an interesting choice. Uh, but before that, she had spoken at that Academy presentation, which yes, I flew. I heard that she was going to be there. Uh, it was right before the pandemic. And so I flew out to LA. I live in Texas. I flew out to LA for one night and, and went to that just to see her talk, which is, I, you know, Ben Burt was there. John Knoll was there. John Dykstra was there. It was them inducting the Dykstra Flex into the Academy. It oh, was that's an what incredible, it was, yeah. incredible night, incredible night. And so she was there. And then she was actually supposed to make a second appearance um, at USC uh, that I had tickets for that I was going to fly back out for again, just to talk to a small group, just uh, a, a night with Marsha Lucas. And that was literally, I think it was, it was slated for like April, 2020 and that got canceled Ooh. and then never, and then never happened. Obviously um, besides that, she's made a couple small appearances at the 40th anniversary celebrations of both star Wars and empire, uh, which they have out at it's called 3010 studios, which is where the original, ILM was where the original Kerner optical um, studio was. And so you'll see some pictures of a lot of the, you know, Phil Tippett's and everyone all getting together um, and having this party that I am very jealous of. Uh, But then Marshall (laughs) will always go because she was, she was their kind of, um, she was like the mother of ILM, the mother of Lucasfilm, right? She was the one that was putting together all the parties, all the Thanksgivings, all that stuff. And so she goes to those. George does not go to those. And it's an opportunity for everyone to like see her again, which is very interesting. And so there's a couple of videos of her being interviewed at some of those events as well. Um, and then that's pretty much it. She also, the, the, the major one though, recently, and I don't know if you had a chance to, to read it, is the Howard Kazanjian biography, um, which... Is a uh, it's J.W. Rensler's last book. I think he might have a Shining book still to come out, um, but it's his last. Oh, yeah, that's book. right. And he passed away last year, I believe. Or mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You, by the way, have a phenomenal interview with him that I just thank you. That, thank you. That it's so wonderful that there are conversations with him that exist yes. for posterity because he died far too young. Uh, yeah, he is. He is probably uh, probably my greatest inspiration, but also, I, like you were saying, uh, just an incredible man and, and resource. And I was very lucky to get to talk to him a couple times. But then especially that was very early on in the podcast and really kind of cemented how I interview and how I, how I talk to people. But in that book, uh, Howard is the one that was like, if we're doing this story, I would love Marsha to tell some parts of it because she was there for so much of it. And so she agreed to really come out of retirement and like talk about Star Wars publicly um, for the first time uh, since since Jedi. Uh, and so that book came out. I got an early copy of it. And I read it very quickly and it was it was wonderful. And her parts were very good, especially during the making of everything, because it was really a really good perspective of what George was saying, what George was thinking, what she was saying and thinking when these movies were blowing up. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Reddit and the YouTube channels and stuff picked up what she said at the end of the book, which is all about the sequel and prequel trilogies and how she feels about those, which she is very much entitled to her opinion. We don't have the same opinions about this stuff, but it's very interesting her going to see, let's say, The Phantom Menace, which is directed by her ex-husband, edited by her friend Ben Burt, right? And a story that she's very familiar with. Uh, and so she was very negative towards the prequel trilogy, very negative towards the sequel trilogy. Um, which is again very understandable if you're that close to something at its inception, um, but was an interesting kind of um, period uh, to 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 put on on her statements. So again, I'm very glad that her story has been told. I think that's the closest we'll ever get to like an official Marshall Lucas biography. Um, hopefully, I'm proven wrong, but that's my my thought for now. Um, and it was a very interesting way to get it. So that's kind of the current Marshall Lucas communications <laughs> history. Um, but all of that paints a very vivid picture of someone who is very, very talented and then who was kind of stunned away for, for a while. Um, and now, oh, I'm glad is being able to tell her story and her perspectives. So let's talk a little about Marsha Lucas's specific creative contributions to Star Wars. So she was not originally slated to work on Star Wars beyond just sort of being the proverbial supportive spouse, despite being an editor in her own right and having previously helped George Lucas's previous film, American Graffiti. Yeah, it was initially, well, first, it wasn't even going to be, we know, of course, of Paul Hirsch and, and Richard Chu, but it was going to be this, I think his name was like John, John Jimpson, a British, just union editor, like, you know, right, that was very much just like the, the day in, day out, just a tradesman. But then that obviously rough cut was terrible. So they brought it to the United States and it was going to be Richard Chu and Paul Hirsch. And then she came in and helped, especially with that last final act. So let's get into that because, yeah, like you said, the original editor, the British editor, not only did he sort of have a very classical, straightforward sense of how to cut a movie, but he also didn't really get the film. Right. And it seemed like he was really playing up the goofiness of it rather than treating it with a finer touch that that it's supposed to be dramatic and he he just made some very wrong decisions so um <laughs> to put it lightly but um um if you could discuss a little bit is like you said um marcia the bulk of her work was really on the ending of the movie the end battle over the death star if you could if you could talk about why that was and what her changes were her for sure her innovations and improved the well film. it even goes 
beyond I, I i think death star is the best way to frame what she was doing because i mean obviously before they came back to the united states she was responsible to story very famous now of her um convincing george to kill ben kenobi right oh, as, right, yes. as, right of course. as kind of the and initially it was it wasn't even like you should kill ben kenobi it was someone needs to die someone needs to be in peril because otherwise they just escape the death star with little to no you know effort and so first i think she said shoot 3po and he did not like that because he loved the idea of the droids being kind of the bookends of the movie which makes complete sense um and so then it was ben kenobi and of course talking to al guinness about all that was a whole other thing uh so when they came back to the states then she had a few other things some humor i think She's been described as like the heart of Star Wars, right? So any anytime there was a little bit of, of humor or anything, George was always very ready to cut it out. And she was always there to say, no, like, leave that in. Let's let it breathe. Let's let it have um, some joy. Um, I so think which the is mouse super... droid is one of yes. her. Yeah. Yes. The mouse droid in particular, I know the running up and Chewbacca scaring it and it sort of <laughs> runs away scared. Like I, like, I remember I've heard that anecdote that, that she fought to keep that in. But hearing you say that is actually really funny because, you know, one of the charges leveled at George Lucas is his like quirky sense of humor. Uh, that's the quote unquote problem that a lot mm -hmm. of fans have with some of his films. But what you're saying is that Marsha, in this instance, was the one who was like, no, we need the lighter moments and keep those funny moments. And George was the one who was actually resisting it. So that's I interesting. Mean, yeah, I mean, if you think about one of their biggest points of at least f filmmaking contention is THX, where it was so dark and dry and impersonal that film and for good reason i think that's one of the main purposes of that film but it does not have that much humor or thought you know it's very very somber and she really did not enjoy that and obviously that that's the part of lucas um and then american graffiti obviously balances that very well almost skews more you would almost classify it as a comedy um and so this i think he was going back towards the thx mindset but without realizing how much of the the success of American Graffiti came from the humor, came from the warmth, came from the joy. Well, so because it's also interesting because Star Wars is like the hybrid of THX and, right. uh, and American Graffiti. It's like if you put THX 1138 and American Graffiti in a blender or if they spawned a child, <laughs> like it would be Star Wars. Right. But that is interesting. Like a part of me wonders, you know, if like he was also resistant because it was such a. I think he was potentially afraid of not being taken seriously. Yeah, it's also just an interesting, like, him world building for this movie. And he, I mean, even those early drafts of Star Wars, we view them as early drafts, but you, you approach them as something that he wrote maybe a year or two years before he was filming, right? Like, the turnaround right. time of some of those early drafts to the final product is actually a very short amount of time. And some of those early drafts are so more leaning towards the THX 1138 side of things, right? Are so, um, inaccessible are so i mean I, I think they're wonderful but they're not they would not have been as, as well received by a general audience and so Certainly. you get to a point with the filmed star wars and you have you have 90 percent of it but like he is still working through those thoughts and those drafts and it isn't until you get to empire and to jedi when you actually have the actors and they feel comfortable in their skin you have harrison ford you you have these characters that are not just you know sketches and not just drafts and then he's able to kind of build from there 
Um, but you also think about the the prequel trilogy. They're goofy. There's goofy elements, but it d- maybe doesn't necessarily have the same amount of of character charm. I think there's a lot of charm in the movies, but like, uh, yeah, yeah, sort of that. Like, yes, yes. Uh, so anyway, uh, all that to be said, she 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 helps with that aspect of it, and then the actual editing process, as as you were kind of hinting at, like the Death Star battle itself, that third act. I believe there was only two passes at the Death Star in the initial element and she adds the third pass and she adds the ticking clock right she adds the um the death star is in range sort of thing right adds that extra element um and adds the third pass and really uh if you watch the movie she doesn't reuse shots reuse shots but they had to like carefully re-edit that movie and slot in things that were not ready to go um in order for that to really work which is which is really masterful no, totally. Like if you watch that sequence with this knowledge in mind, you realize that it's just shots of Leia looking worried and 3PO looking worried and uh and Peter Cushing looking vaguely concerned and the uh the voiceover of the countdown and the graphic of the countdown saying they're approaching Yavin and within range and all that stuff. And they actually reuse the firing sequence from the destruction of Alderaan to totally create this whole sequence that was not conceived of in the script, was not shot that way, was not like, so that is really a creation of Marsha Lucas. And it's, it's crazy to, to imagine that sequence without any of that stuff. Yeah, for sure. It is, again, uh, really showcasing all of her chops, right? She was not able, I mean, what she was able to do with those scraps is really incredible, right? Um, and that carries through uh, the Raiders example is, obviously she didn't edit Raiders, but her adding the final scene or like convincing them to add the final scene with Marion, because otherwise <laughs> Marion would not have had a conclusion. Right, crazy. she... She asked, so what happened to Marion? Right? It's like, yes. and then and, and it's sort of like, yeah, you know, the only woman in the room is like, so what happened to the so what happened to the woman? Right? <laughs> and it's kind of like, oh yeah, I guess we should add a scene. Um, <laughs> um so I just want to clarify one thing. You said yeah. that there were two runs on the trench and she added a third. I thought that there were four. Like and she so took Luke, it down. Yeah, so Luke made one see. run and was unsuccessful. He used the targeting computer and he missed the shot. And then he took a fourth run where he decided to shut the computer off. So I kind of like the four the four rounds almost make more sense, but I just haven't seen that as as much as I would I would like. I don't know if you ever have you ever read the secret history of Star Wars? Yeah. That's like yeah, that's that that's where I saw the two and I'm I'm trying to find that right now. Oh, yeah, the two's in there. Um so I believe where I'm getting mine from, I think was from Marsha Lucas's mouth from mm, the Vice documentary. From the Vice. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So so that's what she said. Interesting. I like that. Um, I can talk about Return of the Jedi really quickly. There's not like that much. Because really with, with Jedi, with Marsha, again, it's Dwayne Dunham and Sean Barton, Burton yes. um, are the editors for that. And she comes in to really help with the third act. And this is while they're like either about to get divorced or in the middle of kind of like this whole upheaval. And so things are very tense, but she comes in to help, especially with the emotional beats is what I've always heard. I think Lucas yeah. described it as like the, 
The crying uh, and dying scenes. The crying and dying scenes. Yeah. yeah. And so it's all the emotional stuff of that third act, which is a, a big part of it. It's the um, Luke and Vader and finding out that Leia is his daughter, that whole element I've always associated with Marsha. Um, but again, like it's not necessarily like building it up from scratch. It was more, that was such a complicated end, almost even more so than the trench run. Right. Cause you're cutting between, um, three massive space battle and or and yeah. death star which is crazy and so i think she just kind of came in to lend a helping hand through all of that um and then you know and then she, she is no longer part of it after that um something else that she said that i had never heard again mm -hmm. from the vice documentary you know obviously there's that very famous disastrous first screening that they had for all of their friends and Brian De Palma in particular, he kind of tore into George Lucas and like really thought he was about to tank his career. And like he was just laying into him, like even when they went out to dinner afterwards, he was just like really laying it on. And one of the things that he said that Marsha said, he said, was what is with this force shit? Like, I don't even understand hmm, what right. it is. Like, you got to get rid of that. And Marsha says in the documentary, the next cut she saw george had taken out many of the references to the force a lot of them may the force be with mm -hmm. you and stuff like to downplay that element and according to her from what she said you know within the last year on camera she told george no you have to put that stuff back in there that's what this movie is about you need the force forget what brian says like he's he's wrong on this one like you you yeah. need to you need to keep that stuff which i have never heard anywhere but knowing how down Brian De Palma was on the movie that kind of struck me as having a ring of truth to it. For sure. And also it falls in line with what Marsha has said about like the may the force be with you being a little bit tied to her religious beliefs growing up as well is kind mm -hmm. of like, it was like that spirituality aspect of it all. She felt very comfortable with, and I don't think she like, she didn't claim the phrase may the force be with you, you know, but like it kind of went hand in hand with it all. So that would make sense. Um, and would also track with what we've heard about Brian De Palma felt about, about. Yes, uh, totally. <laughs> yeah. But um, I do want to talk about the vice documentary for a second, because same as you, I took issue with the framing and the very clear sort of narrative agenda that it had in mind. It seemed like it like had a specific perspective that it was trying to sell. But that aside, the on-camera stuff with Marsha Lucas and even some others like Howard Cassandrin and stuff, like having these people say these very frank things on video, I thought there was a lot of value in just seeing Marsha say certain things in her own words, like things, frankly, I never thought we would ever know or hear her say. And I mean, again, like a lot of the animosity or the opinion she has regarding the prequel trilogy and the sequels is, is totally understandable. But like hearing her say that after she saw The Phantom Menace, she went out and cried in her car in the parking lot, like just I'm not really crescendoing to a point here. It's just sort of <laughs> I just never I was really shocked to hear and see some of those insights from her that, again, as a figure who has not been sort of part of the Star Wars story for such a long time to all of a sudden see these candid moments with her, I thought was really, it was very emotional. Yeah, it is. I think emotional is a good word just in general for, for the Marsha 
appreciation. And I think you were balancing it a little bit with how you were talking because I have such deep appreciation for George and such deep respect for everything he, he did. And, and that entire team is, is so vital to the success of each of those movies. Each of those movies is, is a miracle movie those first six star Wars yeah. in various capacities. And I think it's very easy to have a, a non-nuanced conversation about star Wars. I think as, as, as evidenced by <laughs> um, many YouTube channels and many Twitter accounts. Right. And I think coming to star Wars, with an open mind and an open heart and an open realization that it was made by people and it was made by humans and it was made by people that are flawed and that have opinions that have, I think makes it almost a more powerful story and a more powerful piece of filmmaking, a piece of media that we've all latched onto in a variety of ways. And I think taking, let's say the original star Wars, for example, and the idea that you were floating that some people say like, Oh, like George Lucas isn't, anything the only reason that it was successful is because of this person this person this person i would uh agree to an extent um obviously george is a very inexperienced filmmaker during star wars he has a ton of ideas that are just like overflowing uh and then he gets to england he gets to tunisia and experiences you know more stress than he's ever had in his entire life and he comes back and island has never finished a shot and you're like okay well what are we doing here and I think you look at that original Star Wars and you look at people like Ralph McQuarrie, like John Williams, like Ben Burt, like Dykstra, like Edlund, like Dennis Murin, and like Marsha, and all of them with George in this like symphony working together, a discordant at times, sure, but in the end, creating a product that has literally stood the test of time um, goes a lot further than saying, oh yeah, George Lucas would have made a terrible movie without Marsha Lucas. Um, because probably, probably Star Wars would not have had the same impact if we didn't have the second run on the Death Star, you know, if we didn't have Kenobi dying, you know, all these things that Marsha impacted. If you took all the impact she took out of it, um, you're left with probably a very compelling sci-fi movie and probably one that we would still be like, that was a really great movie. And I bet we have gotten a couple sequels from it, but maybe it wouldn't have been what we have today. Who knows? Who really knows? Um, but Marsha's involvement is so tied in with Star Wars as kind of like the heart of Star Wars and something that we love. And I don't think is necessarily not present if she doesn't, um, isn't there. Cause it, saying that she's the heart of Star Wars implies that George doesn't necessarily have a heart. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think, cause I think George intrinsically is a humanist, right. And is intrinsically like, here's who people are, but maybe he's not the best at expressing that. Right. He, he, he wants everyone to have that same, um, reaction that he does without necessarily like realizing that other people have different life experiences he does or you know whatever it might be and I think a good example of that is THX uh, a movie that Marsha did not like a movie that I really like but it is a very cold movie it is a very you know like compared to a Star Wars I could see a world where the original Star Wars is a is a THX with a bigger cast and more special effects and a little bit more of a hero's journey um, but still not the, the heart that we come to for Star Wars. Um, I think that's kind of the, the key with Marsha. And I think, you know, there's a discussion of like, did George lose that when he hit the prequels? And he didn't have Marsha and like, well, the quote unquote, the people listening can't see me. Uh, uh, the people that are like, oh, Lucas had only yes men around him. And that's why the prequels suck. And I'm like, I don't know, like 
I think I think the biggest flaws of Star Wars are present in in the prequels. And I think the biggest successes are present in the prequels. I think it's all, it's all very um, uh, relative to how you experience things. Um, I'm sure I'm sure her presence is very much missed in in terms of that editing. But I think you have people again like like Ben Burt literally learning how to edit and becoming the editor of of Attack of the Clones or other stuff as they as they make stuff up and how to, how to do digital editing with the edit droid. Um, so again, it's all very relative. And it's not black and white, which is why I think this conversation is so um, invigorating and so interesting to talk through. Because we still don't know everything about about what happened behind closed doors, but we can at least use it to add to our appreciation of these of these movies. No, absolutely. And not only that, like even if we did know everything, I think it would still <laughs> be sort of a question like, well, like who's who's really responsible for what? Because, you know, the filmmaking process is so collaborative and ideas are so sort of intangible. Like, like it's an interesting counterfactual. Without Marshall Lucas, what would the original Star Wars have been like? We don't know what solutions, what other ideas would have been arrived at without her presence. So we can't really say exactly what it's like you can't really separate it it's like a hard sort of a question to even like what is the value of the question in the first place it's like will it 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 like would have been something else we don't know what it would have been right (laughs) yeah what is the value of that who cares like i guess i guess we're getting to a point with star wars you know we're 45 years on now at this point right it's just like we might have run out of things to talk about in a sense in a in a a layman's sense because i think i think we see this all the time i don't know if if you ever said i'm a star wars fan I always get the same five things from people where it's like, Oh, like the Darth Jar Jar theory or like the prequel. <laughs> su- you know, like there's, there's like, there are like five things yeah. that people say they're like, Oh, I love star Wars. Have you seen this? Have you seen this meme? Have you heard about, you know, Kathleen Kennedy being fired? Like it's all these like weird behind the scenes lore aspects that aren't necessarily true or real, but it's like what people gravitate towards. Cause like we've almost run out of truth. We've like run out of the elements of star Wars to pour over from a from a layman's perspective i think you can really dive in i think there's still a ton of props we don't know the lineage of right we don't know how they built x sure. y or z right which is so interesting and so crazy right or we don't know you know the the aspects of the original cut or like anything like that but like we've gotten to a point with star wars where it is probably the thing in movie history that has the most behind the scenes content for it right the for most sure. behind the scenes books and and shorts and specials and also what i mean lucas even more so than being an influential filmmaker really pioneered like the importance of behind the scenes documentaries and books and storyboard books and and whatever it was because he knew how important that was and, and wanted that carried through and you see that later on when he just has film crews doing you know phantom menace and everything like that um and so we've gotten to a point where we've seen so much and now every time like starwars.com publishes something and i see like a one second clip from a behind the scenes, you know, shot in at Elstree. I'm like, oh, we haven't seen that before. Like stuff exists that we haven't seen, but like how much will it add to the tapestry? Yeah. So I want to qualify what I'm about to say by acknowledging that you and I are speaking about the experience of a woman from the perspective of two cisgendered men. Right. Um, or actually, I apologize. I shouldn't assume that you are cisgendered. You, assu- you assumed like- correctly. You assumed correctly. <laughs> I just feel like you shared enough like childhood photos that I was a safe yeah. assumption. <laughs> okay, no, sorry. It, yeah, you assumed correctly. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, so we're so we're two men and we're talking about the experience of a woman. So I just want to acknowledge that. But how much of this this erasure 
well, I guess erasure at worst and kind of overlooking at best, how much of Marsha's absence from the story of Star Wars do you think has to do with sexism, with the fact that... Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting to me because even while they were together, right, it wasn't as if as soon as they got divorced, she was erased from the archives. She was erased from all the speaking because, like, I mean, she went to the Academy Award and she's in that one photo and, like, she goes to award shows with him. But really, the only in period time that we see is in that Skywalking Dave Pollock book, right? Is when she's ever really, really mentioned for being this incredible editor and, like, someone that has worked on some of the best movies of all time before Star Wars and has her own career and is her own person. We don't at least now looking through all these documents, we don't have that much um, from that time, which leads me to believe that, yes, I think a lot of it was George hurting and George wanting to separate himself from it and wanting to begin the story. And we were talking a little bit about like how he always has mythologized himself. Right. But like he wanted, I don't think he wanted to like take credit credit, but I think there was an amount of mythologizing happening around the creation of star Wars from the first movie right i mean like you have a making of star wars book you have the art of books you have the um blueprint books like he was very on top of creating behind the scenes footage for that movie which is rare for movies like that at that point in time and she was not present in a lot of that right like she was not there like we did not have the trench run story in any of those 70 to 80 books right otherwise you would think that that would be in there you'd think that that'd be a story that's like oh my wife helped me with this movie here's what she brought to the table right like i don't know it seems like something that would cross my mind if my wife was helping with a movie um and so that's one element of it and i think the second element of it is someone that is separated and someone that is divorced and getting cheated on i think then he really reacted incredibly poorly but also like you understand his mindset where you're just like i'm just gonna never think about her, talk about her again and, and let her take none of the credit. Like it's not her, her thing. No, totally. But the other thing about like, when I say her, her erasure, it's beyond just from her contributions to star Wars. Like she was an accomplished editor in her yeah. own right. She edited a bunch of movies for Martin Scorsese. Like you mentioned, she was, she was the reason why Scorsese hired Paul Hirsch. She edited New York, New York at Martin yeah. Scorsese's request. Like, it has to do with the dynamics of the divorce and like who gets whose friends. And he got all the friends, right? And that really hurt her. That w- that's been something that she's been very public about. It's like they would go to the same stuff. They would hang out with the same people, right? They had the same group of friends, but all the friends, I don't know whether they decided to go with George or it was naturally just like, we, we want to hang out with George, but like she, she did not have any friends after that. Like, well, they- Yeah, well, so that's sort of what I'm getting at here, like this idea that in the 70s and 80s, and I mean, things have improved, but not as much as I think people would like to think. But like Hollywood was a boys club, especially, especially the new Hollywood of the 70s. Like, I just think there was no conscious exclusion. But I think it was it was out of sexism. It's like, well, well, obviously, like, we're friends with George. And like, I mean, this is our club. It's too bad that we can't see Marsha anymore. Right, right. It's like, it's sort of my sense of it. Right. Why didn't Marsha Lucas ever cut another movie for Scorsese again? It's hard to untangle. Like, I know that one of the points of contention between her and George was that she really, it's like, okay, 
we've had all this success, we have all this money, now let's have a family and let's have a life and enjoy ourselves a little bit. Right. And he couldn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's not really him. And that was, you know, sort of the flaw in the design of the Death Star that ultimately led to it blowing up. I'm, I mangled that analogy, but you get what I'm no, saying. It was, no, for sure. it was the fatal flaw. Like it was the small exhaust port right below the main port that <laughs> blew up their marriage. <laughs> You're crazy. Uh, I might have to cut to that. That's rather. No, I think it was good. I think it was good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, one other thing that I just feel compelled to mention is that you mentioned, you know, Marsha cheated on George with the man who she eventually married after she divorced George. She claims emphatically, again, in the Vice documentary, that she never cheated. Mm. And... You know, I know that that's sort of a he said, she said thing. Yeah. But up until then, in my mind, the story was always she yeah, cheated on him. Yeah, very interesting. For sure. And there was never like any question about that, like as far as yeah. I was concerned. Yeah. But she was in tears and she was like very emphatic that she was never, never unfaithful to George while they were married. Mm. Um, Which I just think is worth. That is, is worth very hearing. much worth mentioning for sure. But anyway, um. Why do you think Marsha Lucas has reemerged now to tell her side of the story to get, well, I mean, her side of the story, but, yeah. but to give these interviews? Do you think it is because of the Disney sale and the fact that George Lucas isn't running everything? I think that's exactly what happened. I mean, if you look at it, right, Disney sale was what, 10 years ago now at this point or something like that, which is Yeah, crazy. yeah, it's 2012. It is crazy. The first time I saw her pop out in person was then in 2015, whatever, when, when, was, when was the 40th anniversary of 2017, 40th anniversary of, of New Hope, when they had the event. And so there was a video of her. There was a, the, it was like a, a dual interview. You can find it on, on the internet still with her and Dwayne Dunham for like four oh, minutes wow. of just Marsha being like, hello, I'm Marsha. And then talking about like something. And it's on some random Vimeo channel. And I was just like, what is going on? Um, so you trace that 2017 to now 2022. You skip the pandemic in there. And so she makes that appearance in 2019 at the Academy. Um, and I think it's her just slowly kind of realizing that people are interested in her story. She's also been out of the public eye for such a long time. But I do feel like you get to a point where Star Wars is not only the biggest thing in the world when you are married to to someone but then is the biggest thing in the world with the prequel trilogy when you're separated from it and then the biggest thing in the world again with the sequel trilogy right it's had two more uh, moments of relevancy and so with this third time i bet she felt like hey like we're removed from it george is removed from it if someone credible came calling i will say something right and again the moments that we've had besides the vice documentary which i don't know how they swung that i you know, I'm not going to make this a bash, bash session because, again, like we were saying, everything takes hard work to produce. But that one, anyway. Um, but for something like the Academy, for something like the Howard book, it was very specific, very intentional things that mm. were asked of her. And I think that's if we ever do see something like that from her in the future, it will be something of that caliber. Um, mm. And again, I think it's just, you know, time, time doesn't necessarily heal wounds but it does help with with certain aspects of it and you know again i think there have been a lot of people talking to her i know that like um the hamels are still in touch with her like there are some elements that are still in touch 
about about certain aspects of everything. And so um I think she's being a little more comfortable. Um and we'll see we'll see if that continues. There was like there was gonna be an autograph signing with her two years ago. Um which got like she was on board and then got canceled at the last minute. Um just like interesting things like that. So um we'll see if that continues. I almost hope that it doesn't and maybe and honestly it might have stop now just because of um the reaction that that howard book had um in a negative way and the people that coordinated that really were were bummed because it, it took away from howard's story and it became just mm. like a something for the internet to argue about for a week which really bummed me out too i was like this is but again she's entitled to her opinion i you know but it was more just how people responded and respected that it, it kind of rubbed me and also just the people that were helping coordinate that the wrong way so We'll see if that continues. Um, but yeah, just a fascinating, fascinating time to get all this information all of a sudden. Really the final puzzle piece of, of a lot of stuff. My issues with the Vice documentary aside, like there were some things that she said that I thought were were very revealing and very, um, I don't want to say shocking because that you know makes it <laughs> sound salacious, but it's right. sort of... You know, she very much gave confirmation that George was basically so hurt that he just wanted and wants n nothing to do with her. And I can understand from her perspective, you know, well, okay, well, if that's what he wants, then I will right. stay away. And I think that selling Lucasfilm to Disney kind of creates that room for her to sort of reemerge because now all of a sudden George Lucas isn't he isn't everything Star Wars. Right. He's not in control of what is seen and like, you know, what is said. And so I do think that that has a lot to do with it, that she sees that it's not exclusively his turf anymore. So it's sort of okay right. to kind of emerge without risking upsetting anybody. But something that was really striking to me, seeing the Vice documentary released so close to Light and Magic, you know, to your point earlier, I almost have to wonder whether or not that was intentional counter-programming, right? I'm sure, yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure they were like, oh, this documentary's coming out, let's also do it at the same time. And it was intentional in that sense. I think that they were just misjudging the quality of what they had. Uh, <laughs> they're like, well, wait a second, you're telling me Lawrence Kasdan directed something? Let's go up against it. You know, it was like a, well, a real so, Ants Bugs Life situation. Well, so, <laughs> so out of curiosity, and again, like this wasn't the making of Star Wars. Light and Magic was about industrial light and magic and was about much more than just right. the making of Star Wars, even though that was sort of the cornerstone of the whole thing. Uh, but for example, because it was Lawrence Kasdan, who, you know, is certainly friends with George Lucas and is, you know, making a product for Disney and Lucasfilm and for Kathleen Kennedy, like I very much get the impression that they all still want to respect George's feelings for sure. Especially when it comes to things like re-releasing the original unaltered trilogy and how it depicts Lucas, uh, George Lucas's role and Marsha in terms of the official story about the making of the films. Like, I get the sense that, you know, Lawrence Kasdan would not have called up Marsha Lucas and been like, hey, would you sit down for an interview with me? just because it's sort of not what you do when you're making something official about Star Wars. Here's, it's very interesting. Like you mentioned, having Lawrence Kasdan as the director of a project specifically for Disney 
for Disney Plus and working alongside ILM, you do give up a small amount, or you do give up a tiny amount of, of um, what's the word? Like you have to assume that Disney definitely made a pass through it. And was like, you need to take this out. You need to take this out. That being said, I was very surprised with a lot of the candor that was in that documentary that I was not expecting to see. For instance, the Dykstra Lucas beef was in there almost to, to the full. I think they, they, they coded it a tiny bit, but overall people were very upfront about it. People were very reflective on it. I think it was very interesting and a very interesting example of something like you know, the Marsha George part of it all, um, of how that could have been approached. Uh, that being said, of course, that they, they not in a million years would they've ever touched it inside of that documentary specifically. Um, and I don't think they really needed to. Uh, I don't know if that documentary would be better or worse if there was a whole thing about like, you know, Marsha saving it in the edit and then, you know, what happened with Jedi and what happened after it. You know, like, does that really impact how the story of Island being formed is created, right. right? Like if you, if you view it as that through line of that, that thesis statement, then I mean, Marsha is obviously a part of it, but she's not like uh, the main driving force. Um, and then on the flip side, you have icons unearthed, which I guess, I, I don't know what the thesis of that story is, which I think is the major flaw of it. I really don't know what like he was trying to say beyond like, I loved the first two movies and hated everything else. Here's a bunch of people that worked on them to maybe corroborate that. Who agree with me, Uh, yeah. Oh, well, that's sort of what the thesis is, right? Like, it's sort of this this very tired narrative about how George Lucas isn't really the genius everyone thinks he is. And I'm I'm sort of tired of that. I'm that, so tired. Uh, I'm so ti- I don't narrative. care. I don't care. I don't care. You know what I mean? I'm so tired of it. And, no, I don't uh, care. It, uh, it's just an exhausting thing to listen to because it's so much more complicated than that. Right. Like, there's so much... It, it's it's so much more complicated than that. So I sat down to watch it just out of kind of morbid curiosity because I knew that the Marsha Lucas footage was in there and I just, you know, wanted to see what she would say. And I like, I mean, let me put it this way. Like, I would never recommend the Vice documentary to anyone who who doesn't already have a very familiar and intimate knowledge of the making of those right. movies because i think it creates i think it leaves you with a false impression of what actually happened but that said like like i do think there was enormous value for for just the marcia interview alone but um so i would like to ask you a terrible question and i apologize in advance okay so you're about to do the last episode of Talking Bay 94. You have interviewed everyone that has had anything to do with the films in any capacity at least four times over. <laughs> and your final episode, you have an opportunity to interview either George Lucas or Marsha Lucas. And you can only choose one because the other will refuse if you interview the other. <laughs> um, who, who would you choose for your final installment? I'm so glad you phrased it that way. Why? Because <laughs> I am I am on record. I, I, I'm on record saying that if I ever interview Marshall Lucas, which is, is an enormous if, uh, that is a, you know, a minuscule, minuscule, minuscule chance that that will be the last episode of Talking Me 94. Um, really? Because that's it. The, the, George, I would never say no to interviewing George, obviously, in a, in a hypothetical but George has been interviewed so many times, right? Like, like right. by interviewing George, you're going up against thousands of interviews, right? Thousands of well-documented, well-accessible interviews. If you're interviewing Marsha, you're going up against five, 
four interviews, right? Like that's it. The, the, the potential to actually ask interesting questions, which <laughs> has not been done very much. Right. Uh, again, there, the, 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 you know, uh, is is incredible and and for an interview and also for a fan of star wars also a fan of, of marcia it is really it would be the ultimate kind of opportunity with george i've always people are like, oh what would you ask george lucas i don't there's really not that much left to ask george i think um uh, paul duncan who wrote the archives books uh, mm. for tashin did a really incredible job recently especially in the the prequel archive um, of interviewing George in a way that not a lot of people had done before, which was really going towards his inspirations to what he was reading right then to what he was thinking about. And that's how we got a lot of this really in- interesting information about like midichlorians and what his plans for the sequels were, right? It was a very free flowing, interesting thing rather than being like, all right, tell me about the inspiration for star Wars. Like you liked flash Gordon, like what's going on. Right. And so he did it in a way that I really related to where he talked <laughs> about comics and he talked about art and he talked about humans and he talked about philosophy and that's a very tough interview to prepare for uh but also not necessarily like a good quote-unquote star wars interview um Mm. it's a good philosophy interview and i think one day i'd be very interested in tackling that especially when the museum opens up i bet you'll Mm. get a few more of those kind of pieces and i would love to to be a part of that somehow um, cause again, asking George about star Wars at this point, I'm, I'm kind of tired of like, I, I really don't almost want to, like, what is he going to say beyond like almost, um, every, every time he's asked about the holiday special or about whatever, it's always kind of a revisionist history. And you're like, well, there's no point in asking, well, yeah. Might as well ask him like, right. So anyway, yeah. Well, that's a long well, answer of saying yes, Marsha, 100%. <laughs> well, no, well, I mean, I agree with you exactly. Like, it's also, you know, not only do we know a lot of, or basically as much as we're ever going to know about things from George's point of view, it's also his answers through no fault of his own. Like, this is, it's just what happens when you're talking about the same thing over time, over decades and, and decades. But like, his answers have kind of calcified a little bit. And, you know, yeah. uh, you used the phrase um, revisionist history. I think that what happens over time when you're trying to reduce what is a complex series of events and thoughts that you are recalling from your own memory, that over time, the more you recount it a certain way, the more you come to really remember a version of things that never actually happened exactly that way, like because it's so... It's it's so complex and like, you know, when you have to come up with an answer to the question, like, you know, when did you get the idea for this or what was the inspiration behind this? Like you end up um, constructing a narrative that over time becomes in your mind true. Uh, like the idea that the idea that um, the much discussed and oft debated question about like how much of the overall story of Star Wars was planned out from the beginning. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not that Darth Vader was always George Lucas's father, per se, but there always was a father figure and there always was like this, this, this fascination or this interest in themes about fathers and sons and the generations and like, you know, what we get from the past and all that. So, so in a sense, like, yes, that's always what the story was about. 
But in another sense, like I'm a firm believer that when they were making the original Star Wars, that the idea that Darth Vader was actually Anakin Skywalker was not a glimmer in, yeah. in anyone's mind. It's just very clear. Like when you watch that movie, like that's not who that who that character is. It's and it also not doesn't you... matter. It also doesn't. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like you're saying him being like, oh, it was always the plans. What's going on? Like, no, like we know it wasn't. It's fine. You Like him. Again, that's why it's been interesting. Because him trying to appear not human, almost, right? Him being like, yeah. this is how I've always wanted it. Here's what I've always demanded. And even things like, for instance, the the thing I always love uh, is not only like, okay, release the original cut, blah, blah, blah. Who cares, right? I, please do. But like, I get it. Yeah. Um, but if you ever go and look up the storyboards for the Jabba scene in A New Hope that gets inserted... And you're like, oh, like, I, it wears, uh, what's his name? Declan Maholland, right? Like, okay, yeah. like, I want to see, you know, it had to have existed. But you, there's no trace of that. There is just versions of of Jabba with Salacious Crumb, who does, does not exist until 1983, right? But of that Jabba in that scene, and then that's inserted into the books as if that was what was going on. That was always the plan. And that's what George always wanted. Is like, no, like, he had a general idea that he wanted something non-human but then wasn't able to do it like it wasn't like oh, i wanted a slug guy who looked like this right that was never the case right no and you can tell because of the way the scene was staged like we see it on screen in uh the special editions like there's no way that harrison yeah. ford walks around the character if he's supposed to be a slug right uh, but anyway anyway um <laughs> <laughs> i digress so but yes like i think that interviewing Marsha, there's the opportunity to hear things and hear a um, a point of view, learn things that you would never get from interviewing George Lucas. Like if, if the goal is to learn more about how these films were made, I think, I think interviewing Marsha is the way to go. Do you think it'll ever happen? I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to say it's going to happen. Uh, I will say it's now more possible than ever, obviously, if, she, yeah. if she's willing to do it. Obviously, I'm not going to like email her this week or whatever it is. I've gotten close is the wrong word. I've gotten closer than ever before in terms of finding the correct contact information. It really will have to be something very special and something very important. It might not be for Talking Bay. It might be uh, for something else. But it'd be very cool if that ended up happening. And I hope it does. Uh, I'm not holding my breath, but I hope it does. Um, you're catching me on a very optimistic day. I interviewed someone today who I've always wanted to interview, and it was not for Talking Bay. And I was like, okay, we can check that off the list. It happened. Uh, so who knows? Um, who knows if Marshall ever uh, come to pass? I hope so. I hope so, too. I would love to hear that interview. Um, is there anything that you wish people would stop saying about Marsha Lucas or George Lucas or her involvement in, in the movies that people would just like, no, or stop saying like, <laughs> you actually don't know what you're talking about. If it's wishes uh, for what people would stop saying, that's a very long list. Uh, and it's everything <laughs> that we've talked about during this entire interview. Uh, and I think it's more of a general thing, which is just like just having a, 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 an element of good faith in how you consume mm. media and I think is so important, especially when it comes to something like Star Wars. And like obviously you and I have been talking for an hour and have had just a great time just talking about someone we love, but are both coming at it from the same way, which is these are movies that were made for 10-year-old boys in 1977 and are really important parts of our lives that we are very happy exist, but are not perfect and are not things that can be like 
you know, observed religiously. And it's important that we just like take it as a, um, uh, an important thing in our lives that, that brings us joy. And as soon as it stops bringing us joy, and as soon as we start looking for things to like make us dislike something or make people the villain in this story that we are creating on our own. Um, it's like, what's the point? Go go read a different book, go watch a different movie and, uh, and find something you enjoy. Um, and I hope, I hope Marsha has found things that she's enjoyed beyond filmed editing and, you know, with, with her family and, and, and with her life. And uh, I'm always grateful for people to that know her name now, uh, maybe in not the context that I was expecting people to know her name, but um, I'm glad that people are starting to, to come, come around to the importance that she has. Um, but again, everything is nuanced and uh, please, please do more research than, than YouTube channels. Um, unless <laughs> Trash Compactor has a YouTube channel, then please just uh, go to the Trash Compactor YouTube, YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> Thank you for the plug. That's, um, that's it. Yeah. Uh, we do actually. Um, <laughs> I second everything you just said. I think approaching the media you consume in good faith and uh, not assuming the worst intentions or the worst about. Yeah, I mean, we want to like things. I want to like things. I don't want to not <laughs> like things. I don't. I'm not like you know looking for things to hate on. It's just like yeah. But that's a topic for a whole other episode. <laughs> um, if you like this discussion, please, please listen to Talking Bay 94, which you can find at TalkingBay94.com. Brandon is TalkingBay94 on Twitter. Are there any other avenues you'd like to plug? I mean, if you search for TalkingBay94, it comes up. It. It's yeah, what comes up. There. It'll be it there. Comes up. Uh, if you ever, if you want to pick up, I get no money from it. Uh, but if you pick up Star Wars Insider um, from the past few issues, I'm in there interviewing people as well at the official Star Wars magazine. So... Oh yes, uh, I forgot to mention that. If you really, if you really, uh, if you really want to read more of, of me, that's another way to do so as well. So that's it. Uh, I, yeah. You have a piece on the special editions. Is it? Is it already out? Or is it's it already out? out? I'm very proud of that. It took a lot of effort and work. I think I interviewed ten people for it as an oral history. Uh, very, very proud. Dennis Murin was one of them, uh, but also people like Dave Carson and Don Bees and um nelson hall I really uh i'm very very proud of that because uh, the special editions do mean a lot to me is how i first watched star wars um mm. and and so i always i always have a very special place in my heart for them um and i'm very i'm very grateful that they uh allowed me to do it um, because i feel like some people don't like talking about it uh, but yes that i forget what issue that's in but that, that should be able to pick up just at your local comic book shop or something like that um, and check it out oh that's very cool so Yes, Google Talking Bay 94, it's what comes up. <laughs> and if you would like a transcript of this conversation, please visit trashcompod.com. And we are Trashcompod across all social media. And we will see you on the next one.